Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and I'm joined by Dr. Austin Rupp, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Patricia Liu. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thanks, Stephen. Happy to be here. So uh, I'll introduce Dr. Liu. She's an assistant professor and hospitalist here at the University of Utah. Um, She did her MD at the University of Wisconsin and then her internal medicine training at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, where she also served as a chief medical resident. And how long have you been here at the U now, Pat? Um, I'm finishing up my second year. She's finishing her second year. It's been a delight to have her here, but tragically, she is abandoning us to do a fellowship in addiction medicine. Tell us more about that, Pat. Ooh. Don't don't, don't boo her. The leaving. The leaving. (laughs) Yes, I am sad to be leaving. We're happy about the addiction fellowship. (laughs) But I'm really excited about addiction medicine fellowship. Um, Where are you going for that? Oh, I'm going back to Oregon Health and Science University. Mm. And then what's like your long-term plan with that? What do you want to do? Are you still going to be a hospitalist and do addiction on the side or both or what? That's an excellent question. Um, Currently, that is my plan. Um, A little bit of hospitalist medicine. Um, My dream job would be if I could split my clinical time between hospitalist medicine and inpatient addiction medicine. um, and work towards a little bit of research time myself as well. Right on. You can start the program at OHSU that we're going to talk about. They already have a consult service. Mm. Ah, Mm. never mind. Mm. Do you have any pets? I have two pets. Um, I have a cat named Pico um, and a dog named Max. And he is a border collie mix. Is he crazy? No, he's actually, he's actually like inside, he's really well behaved. And then outside, he can be a monster, but mm. appropriately. My border collie mix is a monster, <laughs> An anxious monster. He's just misunderstood, but. He... Oh, yeah. I mean, Max is anxious. I blame the Max owners. Max anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's projection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to miss the most about Utah besides Austin and myself? Uh, obviously, I'm going to miss the whole group. Um, shout out to the ladies in the MGL. That's our office. And I'm going to miss frolicking in the foothills with my dog. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's mountains in Portland too, right? Yeah, they're just farther away. Mm. Not as good, obviously. <laughs> You'll never match the outdoor experience of Utah, but we expect you to come back a lot and visit and uh, yeah. maybe even come back to our group one day when you've come to your senses. Maybe. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Liu is going to talk to us about uh, an article that was published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine this month. Uh, Take it away. Awesome. Um, Yeah. So the paper I'm presenting today is called Implementation of a Comprehensive Hospitalist-Led Initiative to Improve Care for Patients with Opioid Use Disorder. And this was written by Clifton and all published uh, last month in the Journal of Hospitalist Medicine. I think this topic is important because about 75% of drug overdose deaths involve opioids. And it's estimated that about one in nine hospitalizations involve substance use disorders, including alcohol. Um, We know that 
medication-assisted treatment is effective and that hospitalizations are a really crucial time to engage patients in treatment. Um, what's interesting is that a lot has been published on these types of programs led by addiction medicine providers, but there aren't as many that have been led by generalists. Um, so these authors implemented a hospital-led program that increased the percentage of patients on medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder on discharge. They, uh, they call their program COMET, which stands for Caring for Opioid Misuse Through Evidence-Based Treatment. Um, getting into the methods, uh, COMET was essentially a consult service for patients with opioid use disorder that was staffed by hospitalists and a social worker. Before COMET, their hospital, um, oh, I forgot to mention, um, this was done at Duke University. Um, so their before comment, um, they didn't have an addiction consult service or any support structure for medication-assisted therapy um, or for opioid use disorder. They then analyzed data from the EHR and compared um, medications for opioid use disorder, which I'll call MOUD from now on, in the two years before comment and the two years after comment was introduced. Um, in terms of results, they evaluated 512 patients over their two years of the intervention. Um, in terms of demographics, 57% were male, 60% identified as white, 31% as black, and less than 1% as uh, Hispanic. Their median age was 40. Uh, the majority of their patients had Medicaid, Medicare, or some other government insurance, and about 30% were uninsured, and over half their patients had an infectious complication from their injection drug use. Um, so I'd say that this is pretty comparable to our demographics um, or our patient population in Utah, except we don't have as many patients. We probably don't have as many patients that identify as Black. Uh, comparing the pre- and post-intervention groups, um, the proportion of hospitalized patients with an opioid use disorder diagnosis that received medications for that increased significantly from 36% before their intervention uh, to 57% after the intervention. They mentioned that um, the patients that received buprenorphine at discharge increased from 2% to 20% pre and post. And then they had really similar numbers for naloxone at discharge too. And I thought that was a pretty striking change. Um, in terms of what the patients got in the hospital, 70% um, of their comet patients received MOUD, 60% uh, with bup and only 20% got methadone. And then um, discharge disposition, about 80% went home, 30% or 13% went to another institution. And I think this includes skilled nursing facilities and 70% or, oh my gosh, 7% left against medical advice. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, yeah. And in the results, I was really impressed that 60% of the patients who got buprenorphine in the hospital got a bridging prescription on discharge, and 80% of the methadone patients were connected to a methadone clinic at discharge. Okay, so my thoughts on this are that um, it's a really great study that shows that you don't need a fancy addiction medicine specialist to implement something that improves patient care or patients with opioid use disorder. Um, I think their successes were obviously getting off the ground. Um, and then I think that 
the the results were impressive in terms of increasing MOUD during the ho hospital admission and at discharge, including naloxone at discharge too. Um, they also mentioned that they partnered with their infectious disease um, colleagues and made a criteria for OPAT um, in injection drug users. And I'm, and this is um, outpatient antibiotics, not just for like at a sniff, but actually receiving IV antibiotics at home. I think there's still so much stigma that affects our ability to discharge patients home. And this really advocates for them. Um, the AMA discharges, that's a topic that interests me. Um, they mentioned that the national average for AMA discharges is 1.5%, but it goes up to 6% with opioid related conditions. So their rates of 7% are pretty comparable to the national average. Um, some limitations of the study was that it was done at a single institution. Um, and then they used a pre-intervention control group to compare it to the two years after the intervention was introduced. Mm -hmm. um, and they, I mean, they used it to compare rates of MOUD and naloxone, but not for their other outcomes like AMA discharges, for example. Um, and I think that that would be interesting to see the demographics from the control group and make sure that it's similar. Um, and then seeing, I mean, future direction, I think would be interesting to see how those or how other outcomes change. Like, are we discharging more patients home? Um, are there more readmissions, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the last thing I'll mention is I really like their future direction. So I think I mentioned that only 70% of their patients got MOUD, which leaves 30% of like, and granted, Maybe some of them, it was not appropriate to give them MOUD, but um, one of their future directions was to focus on a more standardized approach to harm reduction education for both patients and providers. Um, and they wanted to advocate for free fentanyl strips and naloxone kits. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was really interesting study. And I liked that it was hospitalist led because I do think with the scope of the problem, like there's just not enough addiction doctors out there, like true experts. Right. And so that really does mean that generalists have to learn how to do this. And so I liked that they kind of just took that initiative and said, we're all going to get our X waivers and we're going to do this service. And it was interesting how at the start of the study, they kind of had like a console service hybrid with a primary service too. So like they could be the primary doctor for that patient. But after the word got out about this new program, like they got so busy with consults that they actually had to get rid of that primary service and basically just do consults. And so thinking like logistically what that would look like, I mean, you'd have to have kind of institution buy-in to, to kind of pay those doctors to staff that service, which is, you know, probably not a revenue generating service, but it is like an important you know, type of care that we need to be able to give. And so like, I'm impressed that they were able to, to get a, a program like that rolling. Um, but I do think, yeah, like anyone who's a generalist probably needs to, you know, get their X waiver. And now you don't have to do the, you know, the, the bunch of hours of training, like you used to, you can just apply for it, which I still haven't done, but this, this paper made me think it's time <laughs> I need to get this done. 
I don't have mine either, Steven. You're not alone, but we should we should make a pact. Um, but yeah, I agree that uh, I think you know the most striking or not the most striking things, but one of the things that struck me about this was yeah, just how much sort of buy-in and institutional knowledge you would gain from being something you know from from being a part of something like this. Um, if our whole group had X waivers and um, you know sort of better understood the associated counseling and even discharge resources, I think we would do a lot better um, with, yeah, you know, medication assisted therapy. So that's just food for thought potentially for our group moving forward. But um, I also wondered, you know, I think the outcome that they look at is meaningful, you know, what percentage of patients end up on meds. Um, But I wonder also sort of what further or future outcomes you would want to investigate to sort of Um, I mean, you know, medication assisted therapy has been shown to be beneficial. Um, but then how do you take what they're doing and show that benefit? I think, you know, meds are good. We accept that, but I just wondered what other outcomes might be interesting to look at here. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting how many of their patients they were giving methadone in the hospital, that's like always like an interesting, for me, it's a dilemma because it's like easy to start methadone, but it's very, very hard to get that for the patient once they leave. And they said that they were able to connect the majority of their patients with the methadone clinic post-discharge, but that was kind of based on chart review. I wonder like if that just means that they had an appointment set up for them when they left and how many of those patients made it to that appointment. Cause every time I have a methadone patient, I feel like I go to like extreme lengths <laughs> to get them some kind of an appointment and intake for the next day. And then like, I, I, you know, I think a lot of them don't end up following through. And so it's, that, that's always a big challenge. Like that's an, and methadone is just a tricky drug in general. Um, like I said, easy to start, but then it's like, how do you stop escalating the dose while they're in the hospital? And it, it gets, I always feel bad when I hand off one of those patients to another doctor, like, sorry, I started methadone. Good luck. So I don't start it generally, but um, that's one thing I, I thought was interesting. They talk in the paper about having kind of a standardized approach to methadone. And I was hoping they shared what that was, but they didn't actually put that anywhere. So. Yeah, it sounds like they made a lot of protocols um, that I think that was like one of the benefits of starting the entire program too. And they, you could share that with, you know, maybe like your other community affiliates as well. Yeah, I think that would be, I mean, we're seeing sort of, you know, this is a, a corollary topic, but yeah, I think just once you get a group comfortable with things the inertia is, is is super beneficial like with phenobarbital and us like we don't some of us don't know what we're doing with phenobarbital myself included but um we're gonna learn and hopefully it'll be beneficial for the patients and we should try to do something like this um with our folks too but i do always just wonder what happens to these patients when they go out <laughs> you know like i just don't know anything about the community resources and that's a deficiency on my part but like what is it like out there you know um <laughs> trying to get meds for opiate use disorder. I, really- well, I, I think that's why a, a critical part of their team was that they did have a social worker kind of Monday through Friday and their main job was like getting them connected to those community resources. But that is such a huge problem, right? Cause most of these patients are either uninsured or underinsured, or they only have Medicaid and Medicaid only does it one way. And, you know, I feel like 
I offer every single patient I see with opiate use disorder assistance, you know, treatment, like getting them plugged in. And so many of them will just say, oh, we've tried that before and it didn't work. And, and they, you know, they already have like kind of preconceived ideas about suboxone or buprenorphine. And, you know, it, it can be hard to overcome that, I think. But I mean, these guys seem to do a pretty good job. And I guess my problem is I don't even really know what to say at that point. Like, oh, okay. Like, not should we talk more about that? But like, all right, <laughs> on to the next one, sort of. Consult social work. Consult Dr. Lou. <laughs> yeah. Should, t- should you tell us about your, what, what project are you doing right now, Pat? Like you're oh, interviewing patients yeah. about their um, use disorder histories, correct? Or something? Yeah. Dr. Danielle Babel and I um, are, were co-PIs on this project here at the University of Utah, um, where we have been interviewing patients, or essentially, it's essentially a qualitative interview or qualitative study um, to get patient perspectives on what it's like to um, withdraw from opioids in the hospital and be initiated on medication assisted therapy in the hospital and kind of the goal being getting their perspectives and see how we can improve their experience. What are the kind of the themes you're seeing the most right now? Um, Give us a well, sneak peek. It's terrible. We, um, actually we were really, surpri- we have been really surprised by um, kind of, how satisfied our patients have been. And this is also, you know, here we've, our addiction medicine consult team is relatively new as well. Um, So I think this speaks a lot for what kind of like the job that they're doing. Patients seem to be really happy with both their primary team and the addiction medicine teams and feel like they're being heard and that they're, um, that we are taking their withdrawal symptoms seriously. So yeah, so far so good for the most part. We'll take that. Yeah, no, that's great. All right. Keep us posted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We will. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that uh that paper with us, Pat, and uh, I think we'll we'll I think Austin's going to go next. Yeah, I have um a, a somewhat corollary paper. So, uh this paper was called Accessible Hepatitis C Care for People Who Inject Drugs, a randomized clinical trial. It was written by Dr. Eckhart and colleagues and was published in JAMA IM um online in March, but um in the May print issue. And so, um yeah, sort of staying in the lane of of, you know, substance use. Um this paper wanted to investigate the optimal way to treat patients for hepatitis C, um, which causes significant morbidity and mortality. Um, Current treatments are much more easier and effective than previous interferon-based therapies. And um, there are tons of barriers, especially for um, patients who inject drugs. Um, to get appropriate hepatitis C treatment. Um, So again, these guys wanted to investigate the most effective way to do that. Um, And I guess it goes without saying that this population is at high risk for hepatitis C because um, IV drug use is a clear risk factor for hepatitis C and is identified as the main risk factor in two thirds of new hepatitis C cases. So um, the investigators wanted to 
investigate an accessible care model, um, which essentially means placing care in this instance at syringe safe programs. Um, they specifically looked at one site. This was the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, which is a New York State Department of Health authorized um, safe syringe program or syringe safe program that offers services, including injection, injection equipment distribution, overdose prevention training and medication, on-site access to clinicians who provide treatment with buprenorphine, um, and then additionally HIV and hepatitis C screening, case management, and other harm reduction services. So sort of just a um, temple of harm reduction in the Lower East Side of New York, um, where again, they wanted to look at accessible an accessible care model. And so the participants in this study were 18 years of age or older. Um, they had injected drugs for greater than a year and had at least one reported illicit drug injection within the last 90 days. They also had to be positive for HCV RNA within 90 days, not getting treatment and not have cirrhosis. Um, the intervention is well described in the article and is fairly sort of long, but it sounds like um, the accessible care model essentially placed all resources for the patients on site um, and then attempted engagement and interactions in friendly and non-judgmental ways. Um, they wanted to compare that with usual care, which had somewhat of a similar model, but only had an HCV coordinator on site who then sort of was referred to as a navigator and referred and assisted patients in getting plugged in elsewhere for hepatitis C care. So um, the, the state of New York already has something to try and help folks navigate hepatitis C treatment, but the uh, accessible care model tried to make that, um, as it sounds, even more accessible by placing that care on site. So there were 167 patients randomized. Um, the groups were relatively well matched. Um, they were mostly males, um, I think 60-ish percent male. Um, the mean 77. age- 77.6. Sorry, thanks. Yep, 77.6 <laughs> and 75.6%. Thank you, Dr. Jenkins. Um, mean ages were 42, 42 and 42.6, mostly male. Um, 58% identified as Hispanic in the uh, intervention group. Um, and or no, 54.9% in the intervention group versus 62.7% um, in the usual care group. Um, so a diverse population. Um, but otherwise, they were well matched. So the primary outcome was a sustained virologic response within 12 months, and the accessible care model did better than usual care. So 67.1% of the patients in the accessible care model versus 22.9% in the usual care model had sustained virologic response within 12 months. Um, this was not due to like more effective treatment among those who got treatment. It was due to getting treated in the first place. So patients who were in the accessible care model had higher rates of what they called progression along the care cascade at each step. So they saw the clinician more, more frequently. They got prescribed the medications more frequently and, um, had follow-up and got repeat testing more frequently. So every step along the process that these guys, um, set up was more effective in the accessible care model. 
Um, so essentially, you know, the study supports low threshold destigmatized hepatitis C treatment um, that was co-located in a syringe safe program. And um, maybe, I mean, to me, this was sort of an, a very unsurprising result. I think when you locate the care where um, folks are and destigmatize it and make it as easy as possible, it's going to be more effective. Um, you know, obviously the barriers are going to be time, effort, funding, um, et cetera. But, um, you know, absolutely proof of concept and, um, you know, a big issue that deserves intervention and mention. And I think um, this just proves that, you know, if you make the care accessible and easy, folks will get it. Yeah, you say it's not surprising, but it's still very striking, like the, the difference in the in the groups, like 67% versus 23%. Like basically the usual care arm is garbage, right? And that's like what we're all <laughs> what we all have access to right now. Like I think about we we diagnose hep C pretty often in the hospital. We check it on a lot of people and it, you know, you add it to the problem list, but to me, there's like no hope that anyone's actually going to do anything about it. Cause I can, I don't even know who to refer them to. Like it kind of becomes like a primary care follow-up issue, but most of these patients or a lot of these patients don't have primary care or seek out primary care. And a lot of primary care docs probably aren't like prepared to fully deal with it. So yeah, like having a model like this, I think is fantastic. Um, you know, where it actually, take it to where the, where the patients are. But, um, I don't know if we'll ever get there in a place like Utah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think the prevalence of hepatitis C and in injection drug users is something like 30%. So we're talking like one of every three patients that they're seeing may have hep C. So what a great place to set up this clinic. What are you going to talk about, Steven? Well, I, uh, I do not have a substance use related article. Sorry guys, but, but I, I do oh. have one, you know, if there's one drug we haven't talked about enough on this podcast, it's remdesivir. <laughs> Can we talk about thrombosis and anticoagulation in COVID after that? Nope. I don't have any thrombosis today, but remdesivir, as we all know and love is widely adopted early in the pandemic after a large trial showed possible reduction in time to improvement, it was never really clear if there was a mortality benefit. Um, but preliminary results from the solidarity trial, which we reviewed all the way back in December of 2020, did not show a mortality benefit. And that was a WHO trial. And so because of that, the WHO has not recommended remdesivir in its guidelines for COVID management. And I'll admit that over the last two years, I've become somewhat remdesivir agnostic. Um, we, were, we were definitely using it a lot pretty early, especially in the pre-steroid era. Then we learned that steroids were great. So we were really excited about that. And then there were like, you know, restrictions on who you could give it to, you know, have they had symptoms in the last 10 days, then it was in the last seven days, those, your, those kinds of things. Um, and so I was just giving it less and less. Um, but this paper that I wanted to share is kind of the final results of the solidarity trial. And it was published May 2nd in the Lancet, remdesivir for hospitalized patients with COVID-19, 
uh, results of the WHO solidarity randomized trial and updated meta-analyses. So the solidarity trial was this massive world, like international study um, that was kind of a pragmatic um, study looking at four different drugs for COVID-19. They looked at lopinavir, hydroxychloroquine, interferon beta, and remdesivir. And those first three drugs, the trials were stopped early because it was quickly apparent that they were not doing anything. So stopped for futility. But the remdesivir arm continued to enroll. Um, and so they got to be a pretty big, pretty big study. Um, so it, overall, the, the um, solidarity trial enrolled 14,300 patients. Um, and of those, 8,275 were allocated to the remdesivir arm. And the comparator arm was just usual care or supportive care. There was no placebo. So they're basically just, you know, comparing them to someone who didn't get remdesivir. Um, but big numbers and very pragmatic, you know, 35 different countries involved. So um, of those patients, two thirds of them were on steroids. And so with that, with the, you know, final results of this study, they found that 14.5% of patients in the remdesivir arm died versus 15.6% in the control group. So the no remdesivir arm uh, that had a relative risk of 0.91, but the confidence interval did cross one and the p-value was 0.12. So for all comers with COVID in the hospital, no benefit from remdesivir. So then they broke them down into groups of those who were already ventilated, definitely no benefit. For those who were not ventilated, but on oxygen, there was a mortality benefit with a p-value of 0.03. For those who were not on oxygen when they showed up, there was no benefit from remdesivir. Um, but when they combined everyone together who was not ventilated when they showed up. So those on oxygen, those without oxygen, there was still a mortality benefit and there was a reduction in progression to ventilation. If you look at these Kaplan-Meier curves, there it is very hard to see where the lines <laughs> split. So it's a very small benefit, but interesting that it did actually show a benefit since the interim results showed no mortality benefit and so the WHO was like, all right, we're not going to recommend remdesivir. In the final results, remdesivir did have a mortality benefit in patients, especially patients on oxygen who are not ventilated. So whatever that's worth, um, it makes me feel better about just giving people remdesivir again. Like I said, I, I, I kind of, I, I went through like a crisis of not knowing or caring about remdesivir. And now I'm probably back on the remdesivir train. But you hasn't know. the data always showed not significant increases in adverse events anyway? So, you know, the whole, it's not hurting, it's not helping, but it might, it's not hurting either, or it might help. It's not hurting um, was what I hung my hat on. Mm. And if he, people were like, but we should do something. It was like, yeah, well, maybe this helps. So sure. sure. And well, I think there is, what I would call this. there is data you know, so there's the pine tree trial that showed outpatient remdesivir did prevent hospitalizations. I can't remember if there was a mortality benefit there. Um, but then this paper included four meta-analyses. So they pooled all the remdesivir trials and they found the same 
tiny benefit. More all the benefit. super heterogeneous, poorly designed no, trials. There, were, there was a lot of high quality trials. Oh. Anyway, so there you have it. <laughs> Back on the remdesivir train. That's Dr. Jenkins. I'm, well, I you know, liked, I was doing it to do something. <laughs> well, I feel like most of the COVID patients I've had lately have had symptoms for too long. And so like, I haven't actually had anyone on it for a while, but by golly, they're getting dexamethasone. And uh, I had one guy that like almost went into DKA. <laughs> the subgroup analysis shows that if they've had symptoms for 15.5 hours to 18 hours, you should, I'm just kidding, obviously, but it's like, you start to segment these patients down so much. It's like, what's the point? Well, I would just segment them as hospitalized on oxygen, not ventilated. That person should get remdesivir. Okay. Fair What's enough. your next one, Austin? All right. Well, I'm going to take us in a different direction and talk about tabbies. Um, so this paper, or I don't know, I guess, Pat, do you have anything to say further on remdesivir? No, I'm over COVID. <laughs> Good. All right. The You're over year. COVID? It's over. All right. The um, wastewater. The wastewater is rising. Oh, God. All right. Um, so this paper that I'm going to talk about is called Effective Transcatheter Aortic Valve Implantation for surgical aortic valve replacement on all-cause mortality in patients with aortic stenosis, a randomized clinical trial. Um, this was put forth by the UK TAVI trial investigators um, and was published May 17, 2022 in JAMA. Um, this has sort of been looked at significantly previously. You know, um, some of the partner trials um, showed that those at high risk of surgical aortic valve replacement complications benefit from TAVI. And then there's been lots of subsequent studies um, that have showed moderate risk folks are um, better off with TAVIs in some ways. And so the wrinkle of this trial, I think, is that it's a little bit more... Um, pragmatic um, and that there was, it was most of the care was left up to the clinicians. So they could put in whatever approved valve they wanted. They followed, you know, their own clinical protocols at each different site, which was, this was done at all sites through the UK that do tabbies. And so it was, you know, sort of pragmatic and just like do folks at moderate risk um, with surgical valve replacements do better or is tabby non-inferior anyway? Um, in, in that sort of more pragmatic setting. So um, the patients were greater than 70 with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis and increased operative risk due to comorbidity or age. And they make a point of saying, you know, that the STS score predicted mortality, but that that wasn't what got folks into this trial. It was just sort of seemingly a gestalt. You could either be greater than 80, which puts you at at least moderate risk. Or if the clinical investigators said, we think you're at moderate risk based on, you know, kind of a kind of STS and kind of this European system for cardiac operative risk evaluation too. Um, if those were indicative of moderate risk, you could be in this trial. So um, patients were randomized to TAVI or surgical replacement. And again, care was essentially at the discretion of the clinical teams. Um, the primary outcome was death from any cause um, one year after randomization with lots of secondary outcomes. Um, they do talk about how their initial sample size wasn't large enough due to lower mortality. And so they had to increase their sample size and decrease their non-inferiority margin, which, um, you know, monkeying with 
the numbers after the fact is always a little bit suspect. Um, but there were 913 patients randomized, um, 458 to TAVI, 455 to surgery. I thought it was notable that within the surgery group, 17 crossed over to TAVI and 19 did not receive either treatment. The groups were well matched. The median ages were 81. Um, they were both 95 plus percent white, um, 46% female in both groups, mean STS scores of 2.6 and 2.7%. Um, at one year, uh, 4.6 in the TAVI group, 4.6% in the TAVI group had died compared with 30 or 6.6% in the surgery group. Uh, so that was an adjusted absolute risk difference of negative 2%. Um, and the upper limit of the one-sided 97.5% confidence interval was less than the pre-specified non-inferiority margin of 5%. So they say TAVI's non-inferiority with respect to death from any cause at one year, and the p-value was less than 0.001. Um, you know, that it held across sensitivity analyses and within pre-specified subgroups, you know, some of the, the secondary outcomes that were notable were shorter hospital stays and less bleeding with TAVI, but more vascular compl complications and conduction disturbances. Um, those were all statistically significant. Um, you know, they had high rates of adverse events in both groups, 55% um, in the TAVI, 56% in surgery, um, which I didn't delve into, but thought was sort of, um, you know, striking. <laughs> um, but yeah, a pragmatic publicly funded trial that, that used any valve showed that TAVI was not inferior to um, surgical valve replacement in this patient population. And again, I'm not sure that this adds a ton, but I think the goalposts are moving towards TAVIs for, for more slash most at some point. Um, and I think our interventional cardiologists are loving it. Oh, those poor thoracic surgeons. Yeah, no, I do agree that um, just more and more evidence that TAVI's just as good, if not better in, in some patients. And there's going to, yeah, I think eventually there, it'll be rare that you get a surgical aortic valve replacement. I'm planning on getting a TAVI at some point in my life. <laughs> okay. Let's see. What's my next one. All right. What do you guys think is a better diet for preventing cardiovascular disease, Mediterranean diet or a low fat diet? If I answer, will you know whether or not I read the paper? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say Mediterranean. I'd say Mediterranean. And you would be correct. So this is the long-term secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease with the Mediterranean diet and a low-fat diet. The Cordioprev trial published May 14th in The Lancet. So other studies have already shown that Mediterranean diet is more effective than the low-fat diet for primary prevention of cardiovascular events. So these researchers were wondering about secondary prevention. So this is a single-center trial in Spain. They enrolled 1,000 patients with established coronary heart disease, and they were randomized to Mediterranean diet or low-fat diet. Patients in the Mediterranean diet arm received one liter of extra virgin olive oil per week. And uh, patients in the low-fat diet arm received what they called healthy food bag packs, which were rich in complex carbohydrates. So patients also saw a nutritionist 12 times each year. So that's pretty intense. And then the paper kind of breaks down the differences between the diets. The big things are in the Mediterranean diet, you're getting four or more tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil per day. So kind of encouraged to just drink it straight from the bottle. And then 
lots of tree nuts during the week, lots of fatty fish, no red meat, no butter or margarine. In the low fat diet, they were supposed to do less than two tablespoons of vegetable oils per day, lots of grains and legumes. If they had dairy, it had to be low fat or fat free. They could only have nuts occasionally, and they were supposed to eat lean fish with a max of one serving fatty fish per week and only up to two egg yolks per week uh, and one serving of butter per week. No wine in that group either. So uh, looking at the primary outcome, it was a composite of major cardiovascular events. This trial was 82.5% men with an average age of 60, average BMI of 31, um, more than half had diabetes. 98% were on antiplatelet therapy, so good for them. They've had a heart attack or they have coronary disease and they're on antiplatelet therapy. 87% were on statins. So if you think about it, this trial is trying to show a benefit on top of a background of pretty good medical therapy, antiplatelets and statins, right? Um, and uh, they found after seven years that uh, the, Mediterranean are, the Mediterranean diet um, had better outcomes compared to the low fat. So 17.3% in the Mediterranean arm had the primary outcome of major cardiovascular events versus 22% in the low fat group with an unadjusted hazard ratio of 0.745. And then they did a bunch of multivariable adjusted Cox hazard ratios and Mediterranean diet came out on top every time. But since almost everyone in this trial were men, they were not able to show a benefit in women. So that was the, probably the biggest design flaw here. But if you have a patient who has coronary artery disease, you should definitely recommend the Mediterranean diet over a low fat diet. That's my takeaway. Oh, a liter of olive oil per week for seven years. Yes. And I should mention that that liter of olive oil was, was donated by a major olive oil company. So there's the conflict of interest part, you know, classic big olive oil wants a piece of that money. So anyway, of course they're going to push the Mediterranean diet, right? Absolutely. Um, Pat has to take a phone call. Pat, are you leaving us or are you coming back? Just so we could say goodbye if you're leaving us. Looks I like think she's, she's already logged off. No, she's she's left the Zoom call on. So, <laughs> okay. All right, Austin, you got the next one. I got the next one. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, so this was effective oral methylprednisolone on decline in kidney function or kidney failure in patients with IgA nephropathy, the testing randomized clinical trial. Um, this was from Dr. LV, I guess, at all um, in JAMA, uh, printed 5-17-2022. So um, real short story here, um, I guess. IgA nephropathy is one of the most common worldwide glomerulonephritides and increases the risk of progression to kidney failure. We don't really know how to treat it. Steroids are intermittently used, but their efficacy and side effects remain unclear. Um, 
this randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial um, attempted to answer the question of whether or not steroids are beneficial. Um, previously, they were maybe beneficial, but then had a high risk of, of uh, serious infection. And so it was unclear if that risk outweighed the benefits. So this trial enrolled 503 patients with biopsy-proven IgA nephropathy and greater than one gram of proteinuria per day um, and an EGFR of 20 to 120. Um, the patients were randomized to oral methylprednisolone versus placebo. They received a large dose initially, um, 0.6 to 0.8 milligrams per kilogram of methylpred that was weaned by eight milligrams per day per month, or I think eight per month is how I interpreted that. Um, but they saw a lot of infections, so they reduced the dose to 0.4 mg per kg with a max of 32 and tapered by four per month thereafter. So um, a little bit of suspect stuff there. Um, the primary endpoint was a composite of 40% decline in EGFR, kidney failure, which was dialysis or transplant, or death due to kidney disease. Over a mean follow-up of 4.2 years, the primary outcome occurred in 28.8% versus 43.1% of patients in the methylprednisolone versus the placebo groups. So um, that corresponds to a hazard ratio of 0.53 with a p-value of less than 0.01. Um, the, there were numerous secondary outcomes that also favored methylprednisolone, including kidney failure requiring hemodialysis or transplant, and sort of various ways that they measured the GFR decline. Um, serious adverse events were more frequent with methylprednisolone, 10.9% um, versus 2.8%. Um, of patients with serious adverse events, and most of those were um, infections in the full-dose therapy compared with its matching placebo. Um, notable that four of those adverse events in the methylprednisolone group were fatal, all in the, in the methylprednisolone group. So um, I you know, don't know. I mean, this just sort of seemed like something you know that we see sometimes, and I just wanted to read it quick. Um, I don't know that it really answers this question. I think steroids are shown to be maybe, um, you know, more beneficial than we had previously thought. And with this dose reduced regimen, perhaps less of a risk of infection, but being on steroids for four years, um, or for, you know, years, months, years, um, definitely comes with some risks and sort of trying to put numerical values to those is beneficial, but I would be interested to know if nephrologists are going to start treating their, their IGA nephropathists IGA nephropathy patients um, with steroids or not. And I don't know that I will because it's not something that we routinely do, but still semi-interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, six, yeah, six to nine months of steroids is a lot. And uh, I don't know that they showed a strong enough benefit to outweigh the risk of infections. So it is interesting that about halfway through the study, they're like, oh, wow, we're having a lot more adverse effects in the, in the steroid arm. So let's cut the dose. And it did seem like the cut dose was just as effective at reducing, or I guess the decline in GFR and proteinuria and things, but, it, and there were less infections on that lower dose, but yeah, like pneuma, and they didn't even have like pneumocystis prophylaxis at the beginning. And then someone died from pneumocystis. So then they added pneumocystis. It's like, well, yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of messy. So yeah, it will be interesting to see. Um, you know, we admit folks with other autoimmune conditions all the time and send people out on pretty high doses of steroids all the time. But I almost never do that unless a specialist holds a gun to my head. So I think, yeah, I'm with you. Like, 
if nephrology wants to do this, great, but I, th I doubt it'll actually be that widespread. It seems like a, a wait and watch approach is what most people do with IgA nephropathy. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, then one day you wake up on dialysis. So that's what this is sort of trying to, you know, prevent, but right. yeah, I think you're right. right. It's a bummer disease. Yeah. Cool. What you got? Oh, all right. What do I have? Oh yeah. My next one here. Uh, so this one is called association of glucagon like peptide one receptor agonist use with risk of gallbladder and biliary disease as a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials. So this was originally published online March 28th in JAMA IM, but it is in the May issue. So not that long ago. So um, this is interesting. I think just as we see, you know, widespread adoption of GLP-1 receptor agonists, right? So we've reviewed these on the podcast before, like semaglutide is kind of like the hot new weight loss drug. These are also great drugs for diabetes. I happen to know somebody on this podcast who takes, uh, uses a GLP-1 receptor agonist. <laughs> um, which one are you on? I am on, yeah, uh, semaglutide. You're on semaglutide and he is yeah. looking trim. Um, it is, you know, no, I think that's because you just eat so healthy, but, and exercise so much. Um, but these drugs are in the trials, you know, there was like this signal for, uh, excess, um, gallbladder disease. And so they decided to kind of pool all of this available studies out there. And there's a lot to see if that holds up. And, you know, there is kind of a, you know, a possible reason why GLP-1 does suppress secretion of cholecystokinin. So you could see why using these drugs might, you know, result in inhibition of that normal gallbladder motility and emptying. Um, and so that could lead to some gallbladder and biliary disease. So anyway, they looked at 76 randomized uh, clinical trials of GLP-1 agonists, 103,000 patients, 60 of those trials were for diabetes, 13 were for obesity, um, and, uh, it turns out, yes, there is in fact an increased risk of gallbladder disease. So either cholelithiasis, cholecystitis, or other biliary diseases like, uh, cholangitis or obstructions or cysts. Um, but the overall like absolute risk is pretty low. So it's like 27 events per 10,000 patients treated for a year. Um, they did find that higher doses and longer duration was associated with a higher risk of gallbladder disease. And also that patients who were using it for weight loss had a higher risk. And so I don't think it's like a reason not to use these drugs. I think it's more just something to be aware of. If, if you're putting a patient on this, especially if they lose weight, just watch out for uh, gallbladder disease. So Dr. Rupp, watch out, man. I will. Thanks. Yeah. Now any little right upper quadrant pain I get, is going to send me into tizzy. Um, but I think this is a, a reason, you know, sort of a, a, I mean, yeah, good to know, good to be aware of. Um, as you mentioned, I think, you know, weight loss is also potentially a risk factor for the development of gallstones. Um, I think this is, you know, an individualized medicine, you know, sort of take as well. Like, does a risk of 27 or whatever it was events per 10,000 patient years apply to the patient in front of me? What's the benefit of, of weight loss or, you know, improved glycemic control. So um, I'm not going to stop. Don't try to stop me. No, I think, I think you should just get a prophylactic cholecystectomy. 
There you go. I'll just take the cholecystostomy tube, please. The oh, destination, destination cholecystostomy tube, please. Oh. We'll go in at the age of 50. We'll get our colonoscopies. We'll get our TAVRs. Yeah. We'll get our there we go. Cholecystectomy. Great. Great. Okay, Austin, you got one more blurb. I got one more really short blurb. Um, this was results of two cases of pig to human kidney xenotransplantation published by Montgomery et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine on 5-19-2022. They took two brain-dead patients and put genetically modified pig kidneys in them, um, which sounds crazy. Um, the, the you know circulatory and respiratory systems of these patients were quote-unquote maintained on ventilators, which I didn't know you could maintain a circulatory system on a ventilator, but maybe I'm you know, don't know what I'm talking about, but, um, you know, this is in response to the complete lack of organs available for transplant. And so this is being sort of floated as a possible solution in the future. Um, so these, these kid, these pig kidneys were, um, in some way genetically modified to decrease the risk of rejection. It has something to do with like alpha glucosidase or something like that, which maybe um, Stephen can tell us more about, but the kidneys were transplanted. Then they made urine appeared grossly well and did not show evidence of rejection on serial biopsies. Um, I thought this was more of a shock and awe article sort of than anything, and maybe like a little bit sort of morbid, um, but also pretty interesting. And, um, I don't see this as a way to combat organ shortage, a viable way to combat organ shortage anytime soon, but maybe I'm wrong. And it's a really interesting concept. Well, first of all, you are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, no, I mean, I think this is a very interesting way to, to try to kind of get a proof of concept, before you actually put it in a live human. And to me, it's more just interesting to contemplate how they found someone that they could do this in. Like the person is dead, brain dead. And, uh, and, and basically they go to their like loved ones and they're like, Hey, could we put a pig kidney in them for like, I know, right? Like, how do you bring that up? <laughs> like, I even find it awkward asking people if they want autopsies, but this, this is like, Hey, your loved one could contribute to science and we could put a pig kidney in them. Uh, it will not benefit them at all, but it makes you wonder like why we don't use this approach in other things, except that it's extremely resource intensive. And so probably, probably cost a lot of money to do this study. Yeah, They had their to... like own ICU that they were doing this in. It's yeah. like, like a red, like a, you know, operating and ICU theater for this, but, Endeavor. you know, I, I do think that um, whether you like it or not, Dr. Up, this probably is the future. I think you we think? will. I think we will get sophisticated enough eventually. Um, but obviously, it's not ready for for prime time now. But before I die, I will have a, a kidney from a pig in my body and wow. a taver and <laughs> I'll get my gallbladder removed. No, I think um, you guys remember they had that other gentleman who, who had severe heart failure was not eligible for heart transplant or an LVAD and they gave him a pig heart. Did you hear about this? And he lived for two months on a pig heart and then died. And it's not really clear what happened. I tried to look it up again today to see if there was like more out there about it, but 
that to me is like even crazier than this that like that Did they would put a pig heart a good in a quality of life like was he for those two months was he able to be like discharged in the hospital while he had a pig heart Oh, I can't remember. I remember they did some kind of like photo op where he was watching the Super Bowl, but um, I don't in think he had. A, I don't think he had a great quality of life. Um, I don't know. So I think uh, this seems like more ethical than putting a pig heart in a dude. Um, like that felt way more experimental than this. This is like, hey, let's just see if this works, and it did work. So that's cool. So then it's all about, yeah, figuring out how to prevent rejection. Um, I, I think, I think this is pretty cool. It's very cool. Let's we'll stay tuned here on last week in medicine last month. In if medicine. I'm, if I'm ever brain dead, you can put whatever organs you want in me for 50, for only 54 hours though. <laughs> okay. Recorded and uh, on the record. <laughs> all right. Uh, I just have one more short blurb. Uh, this is just a new, uh, recommendation from the U S preventative services task force. I always forget USPSTF uh, on aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So I feel like I never know what the recommendation is for this, but they updated it from 2016. So I just thought you guys should know that, uh, after reviewing all of the available literature, they have concluded that with moderate certainty, the aspirin use for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease events in adults aged 40 to 59 who have a 10% or greater 10-year CVD risk has a small net benefit. And they have concluded uh, that with moderate certainty that initiating aspirin use for the primary prevention of CVD events in adults 60 years or older has no net benefit. And so their recommendation is that the decision to initiate low-dose aspirin use for the primary prevention of CVD in adults aged 40 to 59 who have a 10% or greater 10-year CVD risk should be an individual one, uh, and that the net benefit is small. So this is interesting, right? Because I feel like in, in days of yore, aspirin was like, you know, we should put it in the water to prevent all these heart attacks. But I think nowadays, you know, everyone's on a statin. And uh, maybe you just don't see that get the same bang for your buck. But I like this. It basically said like, you know, you can do it, but most people probably don't need it. And uh, it, we probably shouldn't put it in the water. And definitely if you're six years and older, don't do it. But if you have CBD already, you should stay on your aspirin. It's good for secondary prevention. But wait 10 years. This will change. Oh, you're saying wait in 10 years till the, the recommendation changes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fair, fair. All right. Well, that's all I've got. Anything else you guys need to get off your chest? I don't think so. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lou. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. I'm, I'm glad we finally, you know, pinned you down. So. Oh, we didn't even talk about monkeypox. Oh. <gasps> 